we are continuing our series in uh, This Is My Son, Listen to Him, uh, and our uh, first part of that series in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. This week we're up to uh, Matthew 6, 19 to 34, the, the section of the sermon that uh, corresponds to the, uh, the clause in the Lord's Prayer, give us today our daily bread. When Israel heard the covenant declaration at Sinai, of which this, remember this sermon on the mount is a reaffirmation of that covenant declaration, uh, they received the law, as we've seen the last two weeks, the, the expression of the Father's will for them. So they would pray, Father, may your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. They also received promises of the blessings that would come to them when they walked in obedience to the law. Fruitfulness, prosperity, peace, rest in the land. That's why the Jews at the time of Jesus had developed the wrong thinking that if someone was wealthy, then they must be righteous. And if someone was poor or sick, then they must have some hidden or unconfessed sin. Now, that was a wrong application of that covenant blessing for obedience idea because the promise of blessings and prosperity were given to the nation as a whole, not to individuals within the nation. And nevertheless, as I said, this part of Jesus' sermon corresponds to this promise of blessing for for those who... Uh, uh, have heard the law and as we've seen um, because of grace and because of God's action of justification uh, now are able to delight in the law and to walk in obedience to the law. Uh, it, It flows on from this previous section where the law was summed up to be all about loving God and loving our neighbor um, which gives us the motivation for obeying God's commands uh, under as we live under his grace. The basis, the, the motivation for obedience isn't uh, obligation, fear of judgment or punishment, but it's knowing the Father's good provision and care. Jesus uh, begins this uh, section by saying to us, do not lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Well, what does it look like to lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven? Well, let's start with some things that he's not saying. Firstly, uh, these treasures are not things that we earn, as if every good deed we do on earth puts a deposit into a heavenly bank account. Uh, We saw last week that the Father doesn't operate in that way. He's not a heavenly vending machine who dispenses products called blessing or favour or rewards based on how many coins we put into the slot. Secondly, these treasures are not material blessings that will be dispensed to us when we get to heaven, like uh, the popular notion that we'll all receive houses in heaven and the size and the uh, number of bedrooms and the comfort of the house in heaven will reflect how 
faithful and hardworking we were in this life. That's how the uh, prosperity gospel preachers speak, as if material health and wealth and happiness are more important than knowing God himself. And thirdly, Jesus isn't strictly speaking of the future tense, as if these treasures are only something that we'll know after we die in some future location called heaven. If our treasures impact our lives here and now, then they are something that we possess here and now, not just in the the distant, unforeseen future uh, when we die and go to heaven. So what's he saying? What are treasures in heaven? Well, you need to understand how this word heaven is used, particularly here in Matthew's gospel. Uh, His gospel was written primarily for a Jewish audience. And Matthew's Matthew's gospel contains uh, a number of Jewish idiomatic phrases, more than, say, Luke's gospel, uh, which had a, a wider, more Gentile audience. And we see this in the way that Matthew, uh, in Matthew, Jesus speaks of the kingdom of heaven, whereas in Luke, we see Jesus saying the kingdom of God. Uh, it's just a, a different terminology that each of those gospel writers used to convey what Jesus was saying. Jews would avoid speaking directly of God out of reverence for the divine name and instead would use other words such as heaven to refer to him. So when we see the word heaven, we can often see behind that word a reference to God himself. If we read heaven in this sense here, we see that Jesus isn't speaking so much of treasures being stuff that we'll receive in the future in some other location apart from this earth, but of our treasures being actually being the one who dwells in heaven, God himself. God is to be our ultimate treasure, our ultimate reward. When the Father who sees in secret rewards us, as as we heard three times last week, the reward he gives isn't stuff, it's himself. As Jesus said in in the covenant blessings of the Beatitudes, blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. The two great gifts of God in the story of salvation history are firstly the gift of the Son. John 3.16 says, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son. And secondly, the great gift of salvation is the gift of the Holy Spirit. Acts 2.38 says, Repent and be baptised every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And what's the work of the Son and the work of the Holy Spirit? Well, it's to bring us to the Father. So when we think of God's gifts to us, we should think first and foremost of this action of the Father giving us the Son and the Father and the Son giving us 
the Spirit, and in that way, God is giving us of himself in his fullness. We've received God himself in his triune fullness. And only then will we be able to see everything else we receive from his hand as gifts, both the good things in life and the sufferings of life. Only then will we be able to be truly thankful for everything we have, however great or small it may be. Only then will we be able to be content with both plenty and poverty, knowing that even if we lose every treasure we may have stored up in this world, we'll still have the greatest treasure of heaven, God himself. Jesus said, uh, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Our hearts will always go after the things that we consider to be the most valuable. And our heart's desires will inevitably, without exception, produce the actions that match our desires. So if we treasure the things of earth, our lives as a result will be focused on pursuing security and abundance in this world sorry should turn my phone off before i uh, preach shouldn't i but if if our treasure is in heaven that is our treasure is god himself then our lives will be focused on living for his glory and a joyful obedience to his commands so jesus uh, uses two pictures to explain this. Uh, firstly, uh, the eye in verses 22 to 23. He says, the eye is the lamp of the body, just as a lamp fills the room with light when it's working properly. So the eye fills the body with light when it is healthy. This, this metaphor is using another Jewish idiom, which doesn't really come through um, crystal clear in the direct translation into English, which is why um, you'll probably see in your Bible a little footnote there where it actually gives a literal uh, translation. To, to have a bad eye for the Jews meant to have a stingy or selfish or entitled outlook on life. Uh, we see this phrase being used in the parable of the workers in the vineyard in Matthew 20, uh, the, the parable where the, the employer pays all of his workers a day's wage, even though some had only worked for an hour. So when those who had worked all day complained, what, why do they get a full day's wage and they only work for an hour? We slaved all day and we still get the same as them. The employer says to them, friend, I am doing you no wrong. Do you not, did you not agree with me for a denarius, a day's wage? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give this last worker as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? This last phrase is literally... Is your eye bad because I am good? 
these people's stingy, selfish, entitled outlook on life meant that they interpreted his generosity to others as stinginess towards them. And so the employer says to them, in essence, what we've heard Jesus say to the hypocrites we saw last week. Take what belongs to you and go. You've received your reward. You worked for a day, you got paid for a day. If that's all you're interested in, then you've got what you came for. To have a bad eye is to live contractually, both towards God and towards other people. To think that we only get what we deserve, and of course what we think we deserve is only good things. And so when God doesn't give us the things we think we deserve, and we see him giving to other people things that we think they don't deserve or deserve less than us, then we become angry and we begrudge his generosity. That, Jesus tells us, is walking in darkness, not in light. It's like stumbling around in a room at night with the lights switched off. If we want to be full of light, as Jesus puts it, we need an outlook on life that sees the Father's generosity and celebrates it, even when it's a generosity to others before ourselves. It's an outlook that sees him as our treasure and is thankful and joyful in knowing him regardless of what it is he gives us or withholds from us. The second image is that of a servant and master. A servant, or here it's actually literally a slave, was to have a single loyalty to their master alone. That's part of what slavery was all about. If they were on an errand for their master and someone else summoned them to do something for them, they wouldn't waver from their task because they lived and worked solely for the person to whom they were bound as a slave to a master. As we've seen, that which we set our heart on will determine how we live and what we do and who we serve. So, who's your master? Is it God or is it the treasures of this earth? Jesus is very black and white here about this, isn't he? Love of money, materialism, isn't simply weakness of faith or half-heartedness. It's idolatry. That's why Paul says in 1 Timothy 6, the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Not that money itself is evil or produces evil, but there's there's, there's an evil of the idolatry of the heart that says having worldly wealth is my means to being secure and being independent of God and able to make a name for myself. Out of this then flows, this, out of this false worship flows all kinds of evil, which may even be seen as virtuous and wise in the eyes of this world, but in reality shows that within us is the darkness of our own ambition, not the light of God's goodness and grace. Now, this isn't an easy word for us to hear for two reasons. 
one theological and the other cultural. Firstly, we struggle to hear this because, as we've seen, the law's high standard of the Father's perfection gives us not a challenge to achieve, but a revelation of our inability to achieve it. It exposes our idolatrous hearts. It tells us that if there's any wavering of loyalty towards God, any tendency to rely on our sufficiency rather than on the generosity of the Father, then we need not try to improve ourselves, but to come in repentance and receive mercy on the merits of the crucified and risen Jesus. So this completely undercuts our self-sufficiency that we have been conditioned and have been brought up to think uh, our security is in earthly treasures, which leads to the uh, the second reason we find this hard, because we live in a culture that loves money. Our modern affluence has done away, we think, with the need for God. The, the caricature of Christianity often has been believe in God and be a good person so that God will give you good things and make you healthy, wealthy and happy. We no longer see the need for religion to give us the things that now money can. Money can give us health and wealth and happiness. So why do we need God anymore? And we as Christians can so easily buy into this culture. This culture that says financial security must be your number one priority at all times. And that's a principle that so often prevents us from loving our neighbour as we should. It's no coincidence that our culture is becoming increasingly secular with more and more people identifying as having no religion. The claim is it's it's the result of our higher education levels and our uh, our ability to understand the logical rational reasons for for there not being a god or a spiritual realm. Uh, and so some studies have apparently found that atheists have on average a higher IQ than religious people. But behind that is actually another story. The fact that increased levels of education also correspond to increased levels of affluence, of worldly wealth. That's the thing that kills dependence on God as creator and father. It's not that we don't believe in the existence of God for philosophical reasons. It's that we exempt ourselves from needing to trust in God because we think we're self-sufficient. Now, something else that also rises with affluence in a culture is anxiety, which is very telling, isn't it? We might think that more creature comforts that come with more worldly affluence should lead to a life of greater ease and contentment. But in fact, the reverse is true. A recent global study just done a few years ago found that across the board, globally, countries with higher incomes on average also had a much higher level of 
lifetime anxiety. In other words, not just a an occasional moment of anxiety that we, we all experience from time to time, but this ongoing state of mind of being anxious. And did you know that Australia is the highest in that list? An estimated 8% of our population suffer from what was called a lifetime prevalence of anxiety. Now, knowing that makes the next section of our passage all the more significant and relevant for us. Jesus says in verse 25, do not be anxious. Now, the first thing someone might say when they hear this is, well, obviously Jesus didn't know about modern psychology or mental health. Because you can't just say to someone who's feeling anxious, don't be anxious, and expect them to just snap out of it. But Jesus here isn't speaking of of a clinical anxiety caused by chemical imbalances. That's a medical condition that is treatable by medical intervention. He's speaking here of an anxiety that flows from what he's just spoken of, having a bad eye towards the Father's goodness, loving money more than God, storing up earthly treasures rather than having God as our treasure. This is an anxiety that flows out of the idols of our heart, the idols that are concerned with self-preservation and self-security, self that the word here really means to place great importance on something such that it constantly occupies your thoughts. Anxiety comes when we see that those things that give us security, our idols, are going to be taken away or have been taken away. And so while not discounting the real mental health issue of anxiety, We should never discount the idea that when we feel anxious about something, we should always examine our hearts before God and ask the question, is there an idol that I'm cherishing in my heart, that I've been finding my security in, that's coming under threat by my life circumstances? And in in those cases, the answer to anxiety isn't therapy. It's repentance, casting away the idols and turning again to the true and living God who's our creator and our father who cares for us. Now, we shouldn't pretend that obeying this call is simple or easy because, remember, this is the law speaking. And as we've seen, the law calls us to a standard that's unreachable in our own strength and ability. The law says you must not be materialistic and you must be generous because to do otherwise is to dishonour God, whose holiness demands a single-minded loyalty to him alone, a God who sees idolatry, worshipping the creation rather than the creature as an affront to his person, that that incurs his righteous wrath. That's what the law says. 
And if we listen only to the law in this matter, then we'll only know condemnation in our consciences because we'll never measure up. But the purpose of the law, as I've already been saying each each week, is to lead us, in fact, drive us to grace. Grace says to us, yes, the law does demand perfection, even in this area of trusting God alone. And yes, you have failed completely in this area by displaying an anxiety that springs out of a desire for self-sufficiency and autonomy from God. But, but see, all of your sin and failure has been borne by Christ on the cross. And by virtue of your union with him, you've both died to your old selfish self and you've been born again into a living hope where you can now live not for yourself but for him who died for you. So now you have a new way of relating to this command, do not be anxious. See, when we live under the law, our motivation to obey comes from fear of condemnation. When we live under grace, our motivation to obey comes from the goodness of God and the blessing that's found in obedience itself. See, see how grace, grace doesn't uh, remove what the law says. It actually affirms what the law says, but says there is a righteousness that's apart from the law. And it's in Jesus Christ and the grace of the Father. So whenever Jesus calls people to not be anxious or tells them, do not be afraid, he always qualifies these calls by giving the good reason, the grace reason for us to not be anxious or afraid. And that's what he does here. He points us to the care of the Father. So firstly, he says, is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Verse 25. Now, when a, a Jew would pray, as Jesus taught, give us this day our daily bread, they were doing more than just asking for food. This simple prayer, simple, simple phrase reminded them of the Exodus story. When Israel in the wilderness ran out of food and they were hungry and the Lord provided for them the manna from heaven. Every morning when they woke up, the manna would be laying all around them on the ground and then it would melt away with the sun. So they would need to be up early in the morning to to collect it up. And they were commanded strictly to only gather enough for each person for that day. When some people gathered more than they needed and they tried to store it up, we're told it bred worms and stank. This is all in Exodus chapter 16. This is the story of daily bread that should be remembered when praying and asking the Father, give us today our daily bread. But we're not to recall just the story but the lesson that came with it. Speaking to the Israelites as they came to the end of this 40-year journey, Moses 
said in in, uh, Deuteronomy 8, He humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live on bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Your clothing did not wear out, and your foot did not swell these forty years. Know then in your heart that as a man disciplines his son, the Lord your God disciplines you. To the point of both the time of hunger, followed by this day-to-day provision of bread, was life is more than food and the body more than clothing. See how Jesus here is basically paraphrasing Deuteronomy 8. True life, real life that is substantial and secure and eternal is to live by hearing every word that comes from the mouth of God. Food and clothing sustain and protect these mortal flesh and blood bodies. But what will sustain and protect our immortal flesh and blood bodies in the resurrection into eternity is the same word of God that brought them into existence in the first place. That word is the word made flesh, made flesh and blood when the eternal son became Jesus Christ. Jesus ate and drank. He wore clothes. But every breath he breathed as a man in this world was done in complete dependence upon the Father. While being fully God, he didn't use his divine nature as the Son to get an advantage over his human nature. Instead, he relied on the Father to provide his every need, both bodily and spiritually. And he did it as the last Adam on our behalf. It's this life of Christ, clothed in true humanity, the the Son, the eternal Son in human flesh, that now sustains us in life and in death. We live by him because he is every word embodied. He is the sum total of the law and the prophets. So food and drink and clothing are wonderful gifts that uh, we can and should give thanks to the Father for. But even greater than these gifts is the gift of eternal life in Jesus Christ. In 2 Corinthians 9, Paul uh, is commending the Corinthians for being cheerful givers. Uh, We saw that last week. He assures them of God's provision for them to do so, to be generous and cheerful. But he ends his call with the doxology, thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. If we were to wake up every morning thanking the Father, both for the gift of life and breath, but more so for the gift of eternal life in Jesus, well, we'll be set up well for approaching that day with a good eye. Secondly, we see that the Father is faithful to all of creation in verses 26 to 33. We've been trained by modern scientific thinking to view the creation around us as the natural world, a system that's governed by 
impersonal and abstract principles that we call the laws of nature. And we can reduce these laws down to mathematical formulae, E equals MC squared, or statements like cause and effect or the survival of the fittest. And so because of that, we, we think there's no room for God in science. So things like a small bird finding food or a, a lily in the field producing a colourful flower, we just kind of explain away as ultimately meaningless events in a world that is uh, otherwise red in tooth and claw, as um, Alfred Lord Tennyson put it. And of course, if we see ourselves in the context of this meaningless world in which we too must be the fittest in order to survive, then we go on to unquestionably follow the world's call to put ourselves first. Jesus reorients our thinking on this. This small bird that finds food, it's because the Father who designed it and created it and takes delight in it, feeds it. The lily produces a flower because the Father takes delight in the beauty of his creation. And so the reason we see a flower as more than just a functional tool for reproduction, the reason we we pick flowers and love their appearance and love their smell, that's because our Father wants us to enjoy it as much as he does. So Jesus' point is this, if our Heavenly Father invests such care and pleasure to such a small creature as a bird and to a plant that can't even think or speak or respond in thankfulness to him, how much more does he care for a creature who has been made in his image and upon whom he has set his love to the extent of actually calling us his children. The son didn't take on the likeness of a sparrow. He didn't die to redeem a lily. Central to his design and goal for creation is humanity. And at the heart of humanity are those whom he has foreknown and chosen and predestined to be conformed to the image of his beloved son. So do we do we really think that this father who has included us in such a glorious cosmic display of his glory is going to be unconcerned or negligent with even the small things such as our day to day needs? The Gentiles, we're told in verse 32, seek after these things because their gods or lack thereof can't provide them with security or hope. But we who know that our Heavenly Father already knows what we need can be free to seek not those things, but his kingdom and his righteousness. As I've been saying, the Father tells us, all of your needs are sorted. I've got your back. I'm working all things that happen together for good 
evil people may take your worldly possessions. They may even kill your body, but you have far greater riches where rust and moth will never destroy, where the, the thief cannot steal. You share in my glorious riches in Jesus Christ. Finally, verse 34, we're told, don't be anxious for tomorrow because tomorrow will be anxious for itself. The Israelites weren't to worry about whether they would have enough manna for tomorrow. They were only to collect enough for the day at hand and to trust that the next day would bring a new opportunity to receive from and give thanks to God. But behind this is also Jesus' understanding that both daily bread and daily trouble are from the hand of the Father. See what Job had to say about daily trouble in Job 2. Then his wife said to him, do you still hold fast to your integrity? Curse God and die. This is after Job had lost everything, even his health. But he said to her, you speak as one of the foolish women would speak. Shall we receive good from God and shall we not receive disaster? In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. Now, this is a hard saying for us to accept because it sounds like we're making God out to be the author of evil. But remember what he told the Israelites in Deuteronomy 8.5, Know then in your heart that as a man disciplines his son, the Lord your God disciplines you. And the writer of Hebrews then picks that up, that verse, to flesh it out by saying, It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you're left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time, as it seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good, that we may share in his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Under the law, Suffering, daily troubles, is God's wrath against us as lawbreakers. Under grace, it's the loving action of the Father to discipline us as his children. So the trouble of each day isn't a hurdle for us to overcome or escape from, but simply the loving discipline of the Father who's teaching us to trust him and to love him more. So just as we wake every morning with thankfulness to the Father for our life, so too we can go to bed each evening reflecting on what he's shown us of his goodness in and through the troubles of the day, knowing that just as surely as the sun will rise tomorrow, 
so too will his mercies be new every morning. Let's uh, let's go out into the world, um, particularly now as we are allowed to go out even more than we have in the last few months. Let's go out as people uh, with that good eye, that eye that says, I'm going to be thankful to the Father for all that he gives us in life. I'm going to be even more thankful for the gift of eternal life in Jesus Christ. And I'm going to look at every circumstance of my life as whether it's good or bad in my estimation as as a good gift from the Father uh, in answer to my prayer. Uh, Father, give us today our daily bread.